Well, these are the days where the songs become even more meaningful to our hearts, and uh, I love that. I really do. I uh, am excited to gather. Uh, you know, the times we're in are interesting because uh, if you're following the story of James Coates uh, Church up in Alberta, Canada, the Grace Life um, Bible Church up there, similar size to ours, uh, you know that James was uh, incarcerated, put in prison for the last few months and then was released. Um, and he was put in prison sort of as an example to um, kind of warn people from gathering together and congregating and worshiping uh, together. And he decided to stay in jail because he wouldn't sign some sort of Acknowledgement that he would stop preaching or stop gathering people. And so they let him out, but they're going to try him in May. Uh, but at the same time, in between, if you, the, the time that they let him out to now, what they've done is they've double fenced the church building. And so you can see it online, um, different videos of two, two layers of fences with police and authorities um, blockading the entranceway and security guards uh, trolling the campus. And what I heard was that Aaron, uh, James's wife, was put on some sort of video cast again. And I think Fox News might have covered um, this as well. But basically, she said, what the authorities don't understand is you can't contain the church. You can't fence out the church from meeting together. And as a woman of faith, she just looked in the camera and said, hey, we, we're meeting in homes. We're, we're going to meet anyway. And And, you know, that's the... That's the faith that we live. We will gather. We need each other. We need to give glory to God, the creator, and we do that. And um, it reminds me to, to greet and welcome the live streamers as well um, who are with us, who maybe can't um, yet be with us, but we're all invited you know, to come and, and to participate um, in this moment. And it's a joy to be together. And we're so thankful for those that are streaming in from around Alaska, around um, our city, but then some from the lower 48 as well. For, for whatever reason, some people go to their church and then go to church a couple more times in the afternoon and, and we're part of that. So we're, we're grateful for the, the outreach of the word because you can't contain the word. You can't stop the word from doing the work. And um, God, you know, is speaking through his truth that is sung and, and, and it's spreading as an effect and it's powerful. We get um, some governing, um, you know, um, probes here just checking on us as a school and even as a church of late. And, you know, we, we speak the truth. We, we say what we're doing and we're singing and we're together and we're, we're trying to be careful. But at the same time, we, we have to sing. We have to gather. We have to, to be here um, to fulfill God's plan and his mission and his work. Things are happening down in the lower 48 as well and um, that are affecting our country. I read um, from a news feed. I, I'm not a news shark. I mean, I keep current, but it just it was one that caught, grabbed my attention about um, a court case that had ruled in the favor of the church. Uh, the Supreme Court ruling, this was on the, from the L.A. Times, um, I think authored in Washington, but it says the Supreme Court citing religious liberty has lifted another of California's COVID restrictions. Holding the state may not prevent people from gathering in homes for Bible study and prayer meetings. This was Tandon versus Newsom. We've heard of Governor Newsom. The Supreme Court issued a 5-4 order near midnight Friday, barring the enforcement of a state restriction that was due to expire on Thursday. 
the justices of the Supreme Court that ruled um, in favor of um, Bible study were um, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, um, Neil Gorsuch, um, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. Um, not surprising, but the dissenters, um, the dissenting justices, they said that it's like comparing apples and watermelons, um, comparing Bible study to uh, you know gathering in restaurants or gathering for social events or in bars or whatever. But I, there are always agendas beneath the agendas that sometimes people aren't even aware of for why they're voting the way they're voting, you know. But um, you remember the court ruling with Jesus where. Um, Pontius Pilate, I was thinking of him, and, and he was sort of trying to discern what really was all going on. You know, what, what guilt do you find with this man, right? And going back and forth between the Jews and the Romans in terms of authority as not wanting to get in trouble, and what should I do, and wringing his hands, and, you know, the Jews said, no, crucify him, snuff it out. And so Pontius Pilate just conceded. He's like, okay, well, there we go. And that's how rulings come down. People don't always know why they're doing what they're doing, but... We're thankful that Bible study is going on, and it's going to go on whether, um, whether the government tries to stop it or not. But in this case, the First Amendment held in this round, so we're thankful for that too. All these things could be anxiety-stirring, right? You say, why, why bring this stuff up? It's because uh, you're all dealing with anxiety, because 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that we're all tempted in common ways. And so we're all wrestling with anxiety and perhaps our anxieties are not ramped and revved by what's happening out there in the culture as much as what's going on in our day to day. And Jesus, out of all he could have addressed in the Sermon on the Mount, decides to address, heavily address the issue of anxiety in the section of scripture verses 25 through the end of uh, chapter six is all talking about the single theme of dealing with and countering anxiety. How do we counter anxiety? Anxiety is mentioned in verse 25, 27, 28, 31, twice in verse 34 as a theme, as a topic. Uh, There are synonyms all through this section that say we're dealing with anxiety. And the reason I think Jesus wanted to deal with it so heavily is as a preventative maintenance uh, dynamic preparing disciples for persecution, for stresses, for things that will happen, but also to counterattack the anxiousness that builds in our hearts for just basic survival, food, clothing, shelter. The context, immediate context to this is verses 19 to 24. Remember, that was two weeks ago, layup. Uh, Not your treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy, but lay your treasure up in heaven. Why? Because we worship God, the God of heaven. And we can't just count our money and wring our hands down on earth and worship what we have and hope that it's there for us. We have to worship God who provides. And that's the immediate context for Jesus going in and talking about our anxiety. Can't, Can't worship God and mammon or God and money at the same time. How powerful is anxiety? Well, Jerry Bridges wrote a book called The Respectable Sins, and he listed as one of the chapters that anxiety is a respectable sin, different than lust, different than, you know, anger or or things that we say are really destructive and awful. Um, Anxiety is classified as a respectable sin, something that we go, you know, it's okay. We know that you're just a nervous Nelly. You know, you're just a person who who is naturally given to anxiety, and so we'll just let that go. Whereas 
anxiety is actually as destructive to your, your own health and your own um, way of life. It can destroy relationships. It can destroy and dismantle your witness. It can dismantle your witness in the home before your children as they watch you worry in the privacy of your own home. All those sins are not really respectable ones. They are destructive ones. We know that people classify these anxious symptoms as anxiety attacks, and that perhaps is an appropriate classification because it feels like you're being attacked when suddenly, physiologically, the gasket blows in your own makeup and you can't sleep. Perhaps you're given to heavy breathing. Sometimes people have heart attacks. You've heard of the almost joking phrase, don't worry yourself sick. Well, people do that. Their bodies will break down due to worry. And it feels like an outside attack that's coming in and messing you up. There was a gentleman in a former church ministry who was a leader. He's probably 60 some years old and, you know, had kids out of the home and his life was going. And suddenly he shut down because of anxiety, just locked up in paralysis, unable to function crying and weeping uncontrollably. This is a very powerful guy. He used to be a preacher and then he was a layman and a businessman and he was just falling apart and he went to an associate pastor for help and said, help me. I, the scariest thing about my anxiety is I have no idea where this came from. I don't know. And he said, well, wisely, he, he counseled him with an analogy saying, it's kind of like being a guy who eats fast food all the time. That if you start eating a few cheeseburgers here and there, it's probably not going to mess you up. But the 500th cheeseburger that you eat may kill you and cause a heart attack. Right? So that's how anxiety works. It's this imperceptible, silent enemy that is eating you away from the inside if left unaddressed. And ultimately, the gasket will blow and something will go wrong. It's the idea that you can't control your world even though you're trying to control your world. You know, we're really not the master over any of our circumstances, but the good news is that Christians have the tools to counter anxiety. We have the word of God, we have the spirit of God, and we can't control our circumstances, but we can yield ourselves to God and his control, the only one who really is controlling the circumstances. We know him as believers, we can come under him, and that yieldedness gives us comfort and the ability to counterattack anxiety attacks. If you don't believe you have God in your life and you're not exercising faith in God, then you can become anxious about being anxious. That multiplied dynamic will keep you from sleep. It'll keep you unhealthy. It will wreck relationships. A lot of people will label anxiety different things. People personify it like the boogeyman that's coming to get you. It's encroaching on your life, ready to pounce. Some people will label it a personality disorder, natural anxious temperament, or straight up physiology like it's a medical condition that can't be fixed. People will diagnose themselves in all kinds of ways trying to figure this out. I'm sure it's a big moneymaker even in um, the medical community because people have no recourse for it. They don't understand. There are you know, ways that doctors will measure serotonin levels and curb that and do pain blocks and different things to curb anxious feelings. I'm trying to figure it out. There's always stressors. There's always strong influences. There's always hard circumstances where people say, I am so fill in the blank stressed out, right? 
This is not just for the world. This is within the church. Jesus is addressing believers as well as onlookers who were wondering if they were going to believe. And he's saying, this is how you deal with anxiety. Well, how does Jesus deal with anxiety? What does he boil it all down to? Really, it comes down at an irreducible minimum to this. It's whether or not you are exercising faith or not. Whether or not you are believing or you are acting and living your life in unbelief. Whether or not you are a believer in the true God who cares about you and knows you. Or whether or not you are a practical atheist, even if you claim Christ. That's what it comes down to. Jesus makes this very moral in this moment. And he addresses it and he's dealing with anxiety. And whether you agree with it on the face yet or not, you need to agree with the fact that Jesus is addressing anxiety differently than everybody else addresses anxiety. Nobody else makes this a moral issue of being a believer or an unbeliever and as a believer exercising faith or lacking faith. That's what Jesus boils everything down to. He does it very pastorally, does it very lovingly, but this is a matter of exercising faith in life. In the true God. It's commands that need to be obeyed. He makes this an obedience issue. Philippians 4, 6 echoes this. Do not be anxious for anything or about anything, but in everything. So don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Pour your heart out to God in prayer. Philippians 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. An exercise where you're brought to the crossroads of whether or not you're going to pray about everything in life, whether, you're not, whether or not you're going to cast everything at Christ's feet for help comes down to a moral command that you obey or disobey. It's the difference between exercising faith in life or fear in life. Faith or fear, they are opposites. The antithesis of faith in life is fear, and fear not is the the most repeated command in Scripture. Fear not. The opposite of that is trust God. If you live in fear, you'll digress, you'll worry, it'll be dominant in your life, debilitating. It actually puts you in a fog worry. It just it's so ruinous. So we need to deal with it. Charles Mayo said. He's the co-founder of the Mayo Clinic. He said, worry affects the circulatory system, heart, glands, and a person's entire nervous system. That's pretty bad. Then he went on to say in his medical journal, I never have known anyone who died of overwork, but I know many who die of overworry. It's crazy. We blame the wrong thing. Do you see that? We need to go to the issue beneath the issue. We're supposed to work, but we're supposed to work without worrying. How do we strike that balance? We need to obey the way Jesus coaches us to obey. And he does so in verses 25 to 34. But I want you to skip to the middle of the section and go to my first point. It's coming to grips with your anxiety in three ways. Coming to grips with your anxiety in three ways. First of all, you have to come to grips with yourself. You have to come to grips with yourself. Verse 30. He says at the end of that verse, O you of little faith. Now he's talking to believers. He's talking to the group on the mountainside as he preaches. And he says, he calls them out. You have little faith. O you of little faith. How do we combat anxiety? We have to first and foremost evaluate our own faith. In spirit, the book Spiritual Depression, its causes and cure. Um, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones um, he wrote this book as a 
practicing medical doctor who had turned into a pastor and preacher and became the expository preacher and voice of the United Kingdom and specifically in, in, um, in London and preached there for years and years, a couple decades, up through the 80s. He said this, again, former medical doctor turned expositor, and this is what he said about taking hold of yourself. He was, he was building out of Psalm 42. Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. This is what he said. He said, you, you have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself. Listen to this. Abrade yourself. Hope thou in God instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that in the end, end on this great note. Defy yourself, defy other people, and defy the devil and the whole world. That's just a little excerpt from that book. He went off, and it's a great book if you're looking for a resource on anxiety. Again, spiritual depression, its causes and cure. What is the source of anxiety? Where does it come from? It comes from having a little of faith, a lacking faith, a sense of worry, a practical atheism, forgetting God. And let me say it this way. Let me build this bridge into the text. You're forgetting what God has made you into as his child. You are God's child. You are God's kid. Now, there are very proactive times in my life raising my kids where, as babies, I had to turn them over, flip them over, feed them, change them. You know, partnering with Judy, we just, you, you're just doing it. And we had twins, and, and in the middle of the night, we would be up and trading on and off children, and it felt like an all-night sub shop where I'm wrapping one baby up and, and giving it to nurse. And, you know, I never dropped one, but, you know, there was a moment. There was a moment, I'm telling you, where it's like handoff, uh, uh, and... And you're going to provide for those needs out of love and necessity. But if you're, if you're even an average parent, you're, you're providing food and clothing and shelter. And no matter how much you have, you're going to give more and you're going to make it work, right? That's how God thinks about you. You're, some of you, most of you are mature adults, but still there's that fatherly, paternal love viewing you as his child that he wants to care for and will care for. He's meeting all of your needs, whether you realize it or not. He's even meeting the needs of the rest of the world that's unbelieving in ways because Matthew 5 says he sends the rain to, the rain to pour down on the crops of the just and the unjust. He's meeting those needs. So God is doing all of this. Do you remember the faith of the apostles when they were crossing the Sea of Galilee and the, the ship, and these are the you know boaters and fishermen, and the wind and the waves was tearing the boat apart, and Jesus is asleep in the hull of the boat. I slept one time in the hull of a boat in the Prince William Sound. It's a very comfortable way to sleep, actually, so I can see why Jesus was doing that. But the boat is breaking apart, and the apostles are making accusations, saying, wake up, wake up, wake up. Why would you let us down? I mean, they hit it from all different angles. What are you doing? And Jesus wakes up and he calms the wind and the waves. Peace be still. But he looks at the apostles. And in the original language, he says, where is the faith of you? In other words, you have faith that's lodged in you. Why aren't you exercising your faith? That would have countered 
your worry. You remember the, the man who had the child who was demon-possessed and thrown himself into the fire and thrown himself into the water. What does that mean? It means the demon was trying to kill the child from the inside. If you've ever been a sort of terrified parent watching your kid who can like halfway, not really all the way swim, try to swim, and you're just on the entire time watching the head, you know, up and down. That's what this dad's whole life was, terrified. And Jesus went to him and said, how long has this been happening to him? And, um, and he said, this is Mark 9, 21. He said, from childhood. And as often he cast him into the fire, into the water to destroy him. But, if, but the dad says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And Jesus said, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. He puts it back on the father and says, exercise some faith and I'm going to work and I'm going to solve this. Immediately, the father um, of the child cried out and said, I believe. And this is the posture. Help my what? Unbelief. Help me. Help me. I do believe. Help me to believe more. Strengthen my faith. We're all warriors. We're all warriors. But I mean, we're warriors, right? I, I'm a warrior. I, I become anxious easily with circumstances, with things that I believe I need to control things I need to jump on and stop or mid-course correct or anticipate or outrun. I mean, my mind works really fast, but the sin of worry just runs a parallel race with my mind and my mindset. And I need to bring it and subdue it to God's control and realize that he is in control and he is faithful to bring us through. Our um, book that we have is our book of the month. is called Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. By Jerry Bridges, the late Jerry Bridges left us a gold mine in, in that book. I've read it. I've read it a couple times, Bible study through it, learning how to trust God, learning how to realize he's in control. That's the goal here. That's the goal. Jesus lists uh, common temptations of trusting in our treasure. We talked about that already, where moth and rust um, destroys, thieves break in and steal. Um, the Palestinians during this time that Jesus uh, preached this sermon would have been having to trust God for the rain to come, for the snow to be on the mountains and run down the mountains and create irrigation for their crops, crops that could suddenly be wiped out by the locusts, things that could run dry on them. God is saying through Christ, Christ is saying, don't be anxious about these things. Trust God. We had a pandemic. It was a time to trust God with resources. We still have to trust God in all of these things, right? We have to be believers who bring everything back to trusting God, even food for food, for water, for clothing. Let's look at how this plays out. Look back up at verse 25. So we have to come to terms with ourselves. And then secondly, we have to come to grips with our God. Who is God? That's going to, who is God to you? As he's described in scripture, does that match at all with the way you view him? Not just as great big, but very much caring about who you are. Big and your father, right? Sovereign and intimate. Transcendent here at the same time. Lover of the whole world who loves you intimately and personally. Knows everything and knows Jesus paid for everything in your life. This is our God. And we can trust him. He loves us and we have to come to grips with this. Look at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, 
What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Stop there. He says, I tell you, therefore, he's connecting back to the money thing. Don't worship your money. Don't worry about that. I tell you, do not be anxious. That word's repeated. What you will eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Don't be worried about food, water, and your garments. I mean, he's going to talk about and allude to the fact that we need to work for stuff. That's true. But we work, but we should then not worry. You work and you don't worry. God's going to provide. He's going to provide these basic needs. Unless it's the exception of the rule and you're supposed to, you know, starve for the glory of God or come under some kind of persecution that's out of the norm. As a general rule, he's providing for all of your needs. Even if you've made unwise decisions, God is still overriding, overruling, just like you would do that for one of your children. You're going to pick them up and you're going to see them through. That's what Jesus is promising. Why? Because he loves your life. Do you see that? Don't be anxious about your life. And then it's repeated. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? That word life there is not zoe in the original language. It's suke. It's your soul. God's known you from all of eternity. He foreknew you. He had you in his mind. He loves you that big, that much. He loves you more than providing for you in this life. It's, it's a more kind of love. Isn't life more than just the basic essentials of daily needs? He loves you all the way into eternity. That's his love for you. He wants you to think of his love in that regard. He loves you eternally. And so it makes worry utterly unnecessary, utterly unnecessary, unuseful. Because we understand God's commitment to us as a father, to our own soul. He's going to sustain your life because he cares about your soul. He's wanting us to ask, isn't there something more than whether we eat or drink? Let's not be Martha. Let's be Mary, right? Mary sat at Jesus' feet, worshiping Jesus because she knew whom she was in front of, whom she was before, Um, Contrast to Martha, who's running around the house just trying to make everything right, make it work. Probably partially a good motive, right? Being hospitable, wanting to put the food out, wanting to make sure everything's taken care of versus Mary, who's doing the better thing, who's taking time and worshiping the Lord. That's the posture Jesus wants from us. Now, how do we learn this lesson? Well, verse 26, look at the birds. Literally, it's a blepo, which is look, but it's epi blepo. Look up. Look up at the birds. Look up in the sky. Now, we're officially in springtime, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. All right. But, and some birds are coming out, but more birds are on the way. Now, as I've viewed birds um, in my vast experience and knowledge of them, I forget what that's called to be someone who's a bird watcher, but you guys know who, who you are, right? But, but, I mean, birds are beautiful I've seen, you know, I've heard of abandoned birds in a nest and that's said, but basically if you're a bird and you're up and flying and, and hunting and venturing for food and jockeying for position as you chirp call and call things off and whatever, they're, they're after it. They're hard after it, working hard to eat that day. But I've never seen a bird starve to death. I mean, I've heard of birds being eaten or picked off, but, but you don't see birds starve to death. Why? Because as they work hard, God is providing for them in the rhythm of the ecosystem. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look at birds. They don't, 
They don't starve. They're provided for. It, it would be the rare exception that you'd ever see a bird, you know, sitting in the nest going, I just can't, I can't go on. I don't have a meal, you know, what's happening? No, they're just out after it and they're provided for. There's enough to go around. And that's what it's saying. Look at the birds there. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Now, there's sowing and reaping that is talked about in the Bible. It's not saying we're not supposed to work. If you don't work, you don't eat. We're supposed to, you know, invest and reap in that. But the point is, God is providing for birds in the moment. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. He's the one that does it with intimate care. He's involved in nature. Are you not of more value than they? Again, here's this concept of more. Your life, your eternal life is more, and you are of more value than a bird. That's what it's saying. We need to be in the same rhythm, the same mindset. Yes, we hunt for food. Yes, we do what we do. And God is providing every step of the way. There's a lot of people who do not have this kind of knowledge of God. They don't believe in a God who intimately cares for them. A lot of atheists who are out there, if you think in terms of the philosophy called cosmology, how people view the world, there's a lot of people who basically view the world as this is all that there is. Christians sometimes default live that way, but there are people who actually believe that this is all there is. This is what life is for. And so this is what life is about. The resources that we have, once they're used up, they're used up, right? That kind of cosmology is destructive. It's called being a naturalist. It's like viewing this world as a bubble with which, with which we live. We live therein, and, and that's all there is. That's worshiping the earth like it's mother nature. And all the resources are done, and so then life ends altogether. And that's why people get so concerned with trying to preserve this world because they don't believe there's a life beyond or a God who sees and is bigger than these things and is providing through our world and replenishing it in ways that we haven't even discovered yet. That's basic atheism. Secondly, there are agnostics and people who are self-proclaimed agnostics who say, well, there's a God, but he's impersonal. He's out there. There's the old um, philosophy of deism where God is a great clockmaker who wound it all up and put it in motion as just underway, but God is completely impersonal. Then you have people who have a tribal view of God, which I would connect to old religious legalism where they believe God is going to zap them and dry up resources if they are immoral or if they stumble or if they fall. God is looking to send lightning down and just starve you to death or make bad things happen to you. That's a legalist That's still in a very impersonal relationship to God. Someone who's trapped in legalism is not really going to their God like their heavenly father. Then you have mystics, people who are into experientialism, and that's rife within the church still. It's where God is basically a power source. He's the power that can be summoned. God is reduced to power. I'm commanding things. I'm wanting things. It's a genie in the bottle moment where I need God in this moment like a superhero to come to my aid and rescue. That is also an, an impersonal view of God. And it's not the right relationship that's described here in scripture. He is our father who is intimately acquainted with all our ways. Psalm 104 speaks of leviathans just running around in the ocean, um, sea creatures and animals that God sees and knows. 
Nowadays, it's amazing with uh, drones and different things that people can fly over the ocean. We, we have more opportunities to see creation and videos of creation than ever before. God's been viewing this all along. All of this intimate knowledge and every detail from birds to whales to, you know, sea creatures to everything is all part of what God controls and loves and he loves us so much more than that. Psalm 107.25, he raised the stormy wind, lifted up the wind and the waves, all of these things. He makes the clouds rise of the earth. But do you know that God cares about us even here down on, on, in creation in this way? I was, uh, my wife and I were driving down the Seward Highway and suddenly um, we pulled over because we had everybody else was pulling over and there were a, a flock of doll sheep you know, right up the ridge line there. And me and a couple of the boys just bombed the hill and just ran up there. You know, before I was even thinking about it, I'm, I'm in a full climb, like out of breath, you know, going up. And the Lord worked it out where we were able to just gently and slowly approach this flock of doll sheep and not stand in the midst of them, but stand in close proximity of them and just watch and wonder at the Lord's goodness. And every time God shows you creation in that way, it's a blessing, right? And it's a picture of how God intimately cares for us. Surprise blessings. I mean, the creation is amazing. We can look at a garment that we would make, and this sort of picks up on the next verse. Let me just read on verse 12, or verse 27, sorry, of of chapter 6. It says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Span being cubit. You, You can't add three more feet to your life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Uh, You have inanimate objects that are mentioned here. Lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin. The idea is they're just beautiful in and of themselves. They're not worried about being beautiful. They're not worried about what garment they're going to wear. There's also, uh, it goes on, not just speaking of beauty, but just provision of clothes. Verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So God provides for our our clothes. He provides for our material needs to be sheltered from the cold or the heat. He provides for our needs physically, materially. He also provides for our joy um, in that in the clothes here are, are pictured as something that's beautiful, something enjoyable. He provides for all of those things. And he's saying the lilies didn't worry about being beautiful, how they're going to grow. They're not worried about how this is all going to work out. And so and that's not even um, that the, the beauty of a flower is incomparably more glorious than anything Solomon ever had or arrayed himself with. Solomon was uh, the wisest and at a certain point the wealthiest man alive. It was like he was able to get anything and everything and make it as beautiful as the world could possibly make it. And that paled in comparison to a flower and the beauty therein. And that flower is just here and gone. And those inanimate objects didn't have to worry about being beautiful. They just were beautiful. And here we are trying to worry about getting clothes on and making things work and being beautiful and providing. And all that sort of anxiety should just be cast off. And we just realize God provides. God makes it work out. That's the mindset. That's the mindset. It's not an irresponsible mindset, but it is a freeing mindset. Imagine if you were free of anxiety, free to enjoy the beauty of creation. 
free to look up at the birds and watch how God is providing and say, that's how I want to live. This is how I want to be. And if we were to look at clothes, even the most expensive silk under a microscope, up close, it really just looks like a tattered cloth. It's all it really is, just substance, just things. Under a microscope, looking at a flower petal, you would see what was discovered in the 12th century called the Fibonacci sequence, which is the metrical code that was discovered showing how everything ties together beautifully. All of that is by divine design and perfection and glory and wonder. It's where you see you know, seashells and different, different um, snail shells that are in that spiral um, setting. That's all part of this code and sequencing that God created by design. The, the, the snail didn't decide to make the shell that way. God just does it for his own glory. Things that are beautiful are just made for his own glory. We shouldn't fret and worry and fight for those things that God is just making beautiful for us. Even a spiral staircase that is architected is a replica of what God just does in nature and creation and flowers and, and beauty. So that's, that's Jesus' point. Let those things take care of themselves because things are just alive today and gone tomorrow. And he's working from the lesser to the greater in his argument. He's wanting you to say, will God provide for me in this way? Will God provide food and drink and things for my body? Of course he will. Of course he will because he does so in creation, in creation. And again, look at verse 30. Um, you know, he, he closed the grass of the field. Today is alive. Tomorrow is in the oven. And then the end of that verse, will he not much more clothe you? It's the much more. If he's doing this, then won't he do that? Are you remembering who you are in God's eyes? He's going to provide for you. He loves you that much more. So number one, come to grips with yourself and where you are in terms of your faith. Number two, come to grips with your God. Do you believe in God in the way that he's described as someone who is great big and very present as your father? Do you believe that? And then thirdly, come to grips with your priorities. That's verses 31 to 34. Come to grips with your priorities. It says, therefore, connecting to all that's been said before, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, and what shall we drink, and what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. What does it sound like to talk like a Gentile, a pagan, an atheist, an agnostic, who really doesn't believe in God at all? What does that look like? It sounds like a person who says, what shall we eat? What shall we wear? What shall we drink? I have no idea. They're seeking it. They're seeking after, verse 32, all these things, but they have nowhere to go. They're not dialed into the fact that God cares about our needs. A Gentile is the synonym for an unbeliever who's groping around in the dark looking for where the next world, um, where the next paycheck is going to come from. You know, there is such an interesting temperament that when you work in the church and you work in ministry, I mean, nothing is perfect wherever you are, right? But if you work in the secular world, it is very competitive, right? It's very real. It's dog eat dog, you know, most often, most often. It's very competitive. And it's very results oriented. No matter how you get the result, if you're getting the results, you stay employed and vice versa. 
That is 180 out from how God works with us. He's providing for our needs because he loves us. And we have to do our part. We have to invest. We have to work. We have to provide. We have to be strategic. We have to sow and reap. But all of that, in one sense, has to be on one burner. And then the other burner that you turn on is just straight up faith, just trusting God and saying, God, provide. You're in control. I'm going to shut down my control and I'm going to yield to your control. Trust in God. That's what, what does faith look like? Faith looks like the end of verse 32. You're not like the Gentile asking these questions. You're a believer saying, I know my heavenly father, look at this, knows all that I need. Our father knows that you need them all. He knows. You're working with a God who is omniscient. He knows your need. I said this first hour, I've said this before. I, I lose stuff from time to time. I mean, Judy would tell you, I lose stuff. You know, it's an exciting event to see me lose my keys in the house. It's like I completely reject everything I believe and preach in that moment. You know, what's happening to me? I can't get in my car. The church keys are gone. What's going to happen? Woe is me. Where are they? You know, people are buying those little things to stick on. Probably somebody's buying one for me right now. Stick on the little tag, the little fob that'll tell us where it is. But the prayer that I've learned to pray and I coach myself in is a little bit of a parable for how we should act and think. I just pray, God, I used to pray, God, show me where it is. But now I pray, Lord, you know where it is. You know where my keys are. You know where that document is. You already know. Lord, will you just let me in on what you already know? Can we bring this together? I'm yielded to you. And oftentimes I'll pray and there they are, you know, and and I believe God is in that moment. He wants to curb our worry and care for us. That's, this is all part of countering, countering anxiety, coming to grips with our priorities. The priority of the Gentile is to seek after things and stuff and provision. Verse 33, the priority of a believer, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That same word seek is in uh, verse 32, Gentiles seek. And then verse 33, but seek first the kingdom. This is present active imperative. It's a command. Keep seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Kingdom. What does that mean? It means think about people's hearts. The kingdom of God is more than eating and drinking. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 14 says. The kingdom of God is thinking about hearts. The kingdom of God is, watch this, not worrying about things in front of your kids. It's trusting God in front of your kids, in front of your neighbors, in front of unbelievers. Unbelievers, they look at your life, and if you're a worry Er, then you are confusing people. Why? Because an unbeliever is looking at you and might go, I don't believe in the God that you believe in. I don't believe in the Bible like you believe in it, but I know you do. And so if you're worrying and you're claiming to be a believer, then that's a contradiction to what should be true about you. You should at least believe that your God, who I don't believe in, is going to provide for you. And so why are you worrying? It's a contradiction. It's confusing. It's confusing. We don't want to confuse our children. We don't want to confuse our grandkids. We don't want to confuse unbelievers who are watching us. And when we are going through trying times, if we are trusting God and looking radically different than the world, then that's the greatest witness that we could offer them that God is real and he is true. Seek first the kingdom of God. Realize you serve a king or you are his royal subject. You are his child and seek righteousness. When life gets hard, be pure. 
Trust God. Grow. That's what it's talking about. We're made righteous when we're a believer, but seek righteousness. Seeking righteousness means growing through trials. And all these things will be added to you. Your job, leave food, clothing, and shelter up to God and trust him while you're doing it. Trust his righteousness. Trust his kingdom. Trust the fact that you can grow spiritually as he is providing all the while. That's the goal. God's going to add it. And then finally, I like the end of this section. I think it's refreshingly honest with how we're supposed to think about our life. Therefore, verse 34, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Sufficient is the day. What does this mean? This just basically is saying, trust the Lord with tomorrow. Today is hard. Life is hard. Life is difficult, but I'm going to trust God for tomorrow. There are hardships waiting for you tomorrow, but I'm not going to think about tomorrow's hardships. The reason we don't sleep well is because we start to wonder in our minds how we're going to fix tomorrow. Tomorrow's waiting for us on the other side of our night's sleep. But we, if we trust God within the day, we'll sleep better. We'll function better. I don't want to trivialize this, but it's almost like acting like an animal who just resets every time you see the animal. If you've got a good dog that you treat well, the dog is going to forgive you for putting the dog outside in the cold. As soon as it comes in, it goes, oh, I'm going to lick your face again and I'm happy, right? At least that's my dog experience. But what I'm saying by that is God just wants us to live within the day. It's been said that a person on their deathbed will look back and will tell you, that if they could change one thing about their life, they would say this, I should have worried less about everything because most things that I worried about never came true, right? Trust God. We live within the day, and this is a taste of reality that God is sufficient for us. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. God will provide for our needs within the day, so don't default to anxiety. Don't do that. God provides for us. Worrying doesn't add one single thing to your life. Let me finish with this. When I was in fifth and sixth grade, don't ever underestimate the power of a Sunday school teacher and what they say to you when you're 12 or 11 or whatever. I remember it to this day. I was sitting in there and it was the youth pastor's opportunity to introduce himself to the fifth and sixth graders that are the rising people coming into junior high. And uh, he decided to teach on David and Goliath. And he used a chalk, chalk in hand and chalkboard to illustrate what was going on. And basically he was answering the question, how and why David was able to face Goliath when his brothers would not. And all the armies of Israel would not face Goliath. First Samuel seventeen thirty two. you remember the story. Saul, he's trying to warn David from facing Goliath's. Um, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. But, or for you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep the sheep for his father. And when he came, when there came a lion or a bear and he took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth and 
If it arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. And your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who has delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. For Samuel 17, 41 and 47, um, he's facing off with Goliath. David knew, I mean, his brother had said, look, all you wanted to do was come here and mock us and watch us fight. And David's like, no, I'm going to go headlong against the giant. Why? The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front, bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you've come to me with sticks and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. This is 1 Samuel 17, um, now verse 45. Then David came to the Philistine. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth and all the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand let me bring this down to the heart level with what my youth pastor did in that moment he with the chalkboard went and drew a nine foot a figure that represented the nine foot giant so you have kind of a big you know, Goliath figure. Then he drew the little David figure that would be like the 13, 14 year old teenager. And he said, what was David's mindset from this passage? And then he drew kind of in a dotted outline using the rest of the chalkboard, a, a picture of what David's mindset would be in terms of how big his God was behind him. So he had God behind him as he's going to the giant, little David, bigger Goliath, and then his vision of God, trusting him. That God was going to provide for him victory. And that's how we should approach this. Jesus is demanding this kind of faith as we approach the world that we live in. Not just in terms of pandemics or persecution, but in terms of daily needs, food, clothing, shelter, provision. We will trust God. And this is our witness, right? We will trust God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to us. Let's trust this kind of God who loves us.